Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston, and welcome to part one of Talking Technology, where we explore issues of technology privacy and technology freedom. And I find myself already wanting to qualify technology because we're talking about communications technology, like your cell phone, your Gmail, if you use it, your Facebook, and just how safe we are and free we are in using these devices and this software. Our guest is Daniel Con gilmore who is the senior staff technologist at the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. So we're talking to someone who studies the infrastructure of the internet, who meets with engineers and technologists to study and document and talk about the rules by which machines communicate and the way that information is stored and to seek to make some of these systems work better. Daniel also developed software, free software, and we'll get into that and what that means. But the point is, this isn't going to be a conversation about how you need to be switching to Signal or getting off of Facebook or getting better at reading your click-through agreements. It's, it's going to be about how technology can be changed at a foundational level so that we can all rest a bit easier. I started my interview with Daniel asking him why we should care about these issues, how much we should care, and I wanted to ask him particularly about technology privacy and how much we should care about that. Because I have these conversations pretty frequently about technology privacy. It's like anytime there's a leak or a hack, people start worrying about their own information security and we start talking about it. But often these conversations will end with somebody saying, you don't really need to be worried unless you have something to hide. And I guess the advice there is just don't have anything to hide, which which is a hard thing to do. But um. I wanted to ask Daniel what he thinks of that. Yeah, that's a super common response. And it's it's a response I understand at one level because it's it's overwhelming when you start thinking about all the data that's available today. But I think it's actually an irresponsible response because a lot of this information is ultimately interconnected. And even for those of us who have enough privilege, those of us who work for organizations with a heavy legal team who would fight on our behalf if we got in trouble, people who are white and affluent and well-educated and capable of exercising political power, even for those of us who are in those privileged positions where maybe we're not so much at risk, we are in a position where if we communicate with other people who don't have those same privileges, information that leaks from us might well be a problem for other people. So I think it's important that we remember when we're thinking about this stuff that privacy ultimately is pretty interdependent. And so if someone asks, how much should I be worried about? I try to help them reframe the question to say, to say like, this is a social problem, right? How much should we be worried about, right? If you say, how much should I be worried about the sea level rising and you have enough wealth that you could move inland and avoid a flood, maybe you don't need to worry too much about it. Maybe you could probably work it out. Maybe you've got, maybe you're a prepper. I don't know, right? Maybe you don't need to worry too much. But if the question is, what should we as a society be concerned about? Well, sea level rising is a real concern and the most vulnerable people are going to get hit. So if you want to act responsibly in a broader society, I think we need to start asking the question of like, how much should we be worried about all the information that's available and how that's potentially usable by centralized actors for technical means of social control, which is really where I sort of see, see it going. So concretely, you know, just as a more concrete example, instead of it being in the abstract, right? I might send you an email, Heather. You might send me an email. Maybe one of us thinks we've got nothing to hide. Maybe the other one is actively involved in a more risky political struggle. Well, if somebody gets a copy of all of your emails, they now have an email that I sent you and vice versa. So how much should we be worried? Well, do you care about what happens to the people who you know? If you do, your data ultimately reflects on them. And so you have sort of a responsibility not only to yourself, but to your friends and your colleagues and the people that you care about to think about how much information is leaking. Another more concrete example is your address book, your contact list, right? You sign up to Facebook, or most people aren't signing up to Facebook at this stage in the game, right? You've probably already signed up for Facebook. But what, one of the things that Facebook likes to ask you is, can you give me access to your contact list? And they don't ask it that way, right? They say, let's find your friends. Well, what's the most convenient way to find your friends? You tell Facebook, here's a list of my friends, and Facebook goes through and hooks you up to their Facebook profiles. Or, in some cases, people who don't have Facebook profiles, Facebook says, aha, 
this person is friends with that person, even when we don't know who that person is. So, you know, that's another example where one person shares their address book, but the result is another spotlight or floodlight into the social graph. And what organizations like Facebook can do is think about how the social graph is formed and use that information to learn about people, even people who haven't signed up for Facebook. So one of the, one of the things you can take away from this is, oh my gosh, it's all, it's all too scary. And this is one of the reasons why people say, oh, I've got nothing to hide is because they, I think they say, if I took it seriously, I have to make major changes in my lifestyle. And those changes are both too complex and too daunting and too unknown for me to even feel comfortable thinking about them. So instead, I'm just going to pretend that it's not a problem and forge ahead, right? Another argument I've heard you make is that even if you personally have nothing to hide or think you have nothing to hide, it's good to use privacy protection technologies just to expand the number of users. So it's not so obvious who does have something to hide. Right. So a classic example for that is like encrypted email. I was just talking about encrypted email earlier today. I'm a user of encrypted email, but turns out I can't use it with many people because most other people aren't. <laughs> so when I occasionally do send mail to those friends of mine who do use encrypted mail, we stand out. If, you know, if someone's scanning a bunch of emails, they're like, look at these folks, everything <laughs> is encrypted. And so, yeah, what, you know, um, one of the reasons to pick it up is to provide cover, right? To be part of the background noise that if somebody wants to collect and notice everybody who's doing secure communications, well, they're going to have to deal with you too. And it just, just increases the cost. But the other real reason for doing it is because you don't know when it might be useful for you, right? Say the political context changes and you've been an activist who works on abortion rights, right? And suddenly your entire network of contacts and other activists who've been working on abortion rights are in a position of potentially becoming criminals again, right? I don't want that to happen. I hope it never happens in this country. I can't guarantee you that it won't. Uh, but by the time you become a criminal because the world has changed around you, you want to have the skills and the experience and the knowledge and the tool chain comfortably in hand so that it's not like suddenly you transition into becoming one of these outliers. I hope we can walk through some options in another interview because I think people really do need guidance. And I know we don't want this to become a how-to. We really want to we wanted to be talking about other stuff right now, but, um, but I do want to ask you your opinion of tour and, um, if you can explain how that works a little bit for those listening, um, who don't know what tour is, it is a web browser that any of us can download as a measure of privacy protection. And I don't really understand how it works. And I, so I'd like to understand more about that. And, um, also Daniel, if you can talk a little bit about tours origin story as, a project of the U.S. military, which could be seen as problematic by somebody who is, say, doing work that challenges the U.S. military. So Tor is not the only technology that people might use today that has problematic origins. I mean, if we want to talk about problematic origins, we can talk about the problematic origins of Facebook, which started as a Ivy League restricted right. way for hookup culture to happen. People still use Facebook and sometimes get good things out of Facebook despite the fact that it has a problematic origin. So Tor, Tor's origin comes from uh, the Naval Research Lab. Um, and in fact, it's not just its origin, but there are continuing participants in the Tor project and the Tor community who, who work at the Naval Research Lab. Um, some of them are, I think, uh, quite reasonable people, although I wouldn't choose myself to work at the Naval Research Lab. In fact, they might not choose to work with me um, directly, but I'm willing to collaborate with them. So why did the Naval Research Lab want to invest? Let me, maybe I'll back up and talk a bit about what Tor is, just so people have a, a clearer sense of what we're talking about. Tor is the onion router. That's what it just, that's what it's short for. It is a collection of servers that operate on the internet that happily pass traffic among each other so that when you send traffic into the Tor network, it bounces around within the Tor network and comes out somewhere else. And anybody who's watching any one of the nodes in the Tor network can't actually see what communication is, act is happening. They can't tell who's talking to who. So it's a way of defending against a form of traffic analysis, of metadata analysis that is very useful 
even in cases where your communications are encrypted. It helps you to hide what you are doing on the internet. So encryption helps you to hide the contents of what communications you're having, and Tor helps you to hide who you are communicating with. And so, and yes, it did. It came from the Naval Research Lab initially, and a handful of other people, but the Naval Research Lab really sort of fostered its development. So why would the Navy be interested in helping to hide who is talking to who on the global network? Turns out they have uh, some reasons, right? So if you are undercover for the United States government and you're abroad and you need to send your message home to, I don't know, Langley, Virginia uh, or elsewhere, you might not want to connect to a network in whatever country you're in and make an open connection directly to Langley, Virginia. If you do, that might raise some suspicion about what you're, what you're up to. So you might want to cover your tracks a little bit. Similarly, some folks within the US government believe that it's important to provide access to the internet as a human rights issue. And one of the things that Tor does is if you can connect to the Tor network, you can hop out of the Tor network anywhere else in the world and get access to things that you wouldn't have otherwise had access to if you're behind a very intense maybe nation-state or maybe corporate-controlled firewall that only wants to let you access yes. certain parts of the internet. So you have, you have sort of multiple incentives, and the Navy is building this. And so one thing is you could say, well, why didn't the Navy just build something for themselves, right? Well, if they build something just for U.S. government agents to use to be able to not appear to be talking to Langley, Virginia, well, then obviously anybody who's talking to this thing is part of the U.S. government. So that doesn't work, right? It's just like not a functional way to hide what you're doing. If you want to hide what you're doing, you got to be doing it in a crowd. And everybody else has to be doing it too, so that you're indistinguishable from that crowd. And so the way to make a functional anonymity-oriented network is to make something for everyone to use. And so who uses Tor? The military, I'm sure, uses Tor. I'm sure there are criminals who use Tor. I personally use Tor. Journalists use Tor. Human rights activists use Tor. Spies use Tor. People who are afraid of being tracked by uh, abusive partners or ex-partners use Tor. Lots of people use it, and the goal is that the use of Tor doesn't stand out as being any one of those categories, but instead merges you into this like larger anonymity set. So yes, uh, if you think that the origin is problematic because it comes from the U.S. government or the U.S. military, I would be one of the first people to agree with you. At the same time, uh, I sure am happy to be able to have an anonymity set that includes some of the most powerful players on the planet. Branching off of this theme, how much of your time when you're working on technology privacy issues, how much of your time is spent looking into threats posed by the government? And how much of your time is spent looking into threats posed by corporations and other private entities? That's a great question. Um, and it's one that's really interesting for the ACLU in particular, right? The ACLU is constituted to work with constitutional law. That's like the, the history of the ACLU. So from the ACLU's perspective, when I work with the lawyers and lobbyists there, a lot of what we focus on really is specifically about government overreach. And sometimes it means government overreach by reaching into data sets held by private corporations. But the ACLU's broader mission really is a civil rights and civil liberties mission. And while we have a great history of doing legal work around U.S. constitutional law, the civil rights and civil liberties have an impact even in places where constitutional law doesn't apply. Right? There is a civil rights and civil liberties impact of the way that our protocols work in locations that are not governed by U.S. jurisprudence or maybe not even governed by any jurisprudence whatsoever. And so I'm interested in, in some of the ways the infrastructure works where maybe the law doesn't reach, or maybe the law is guaranteed to be contested. And those contests are fine, and I'm happy to have lawyers at my side uh, who will work on the legal contest. Questions of the way the infrastructure works are going to actually have an impact on what even comes before the courts. So one of the ways I like to explain this um, as an analogy, if folks are into urban design and urban planning, is that you can say, okay, say you care about livable cities. Say you care about a safe pedestrian walkways, right? You can make it illegal to speed and you can make it 
uh, you can increase the penalties for hitting somebody with a car and you can you can pay for lots of police right those are all things you can do within the legal and like adjudication systems to try to reduce the risk to the pedestrians who are walking on places where cars are potentially dangerous. You can license drivers, you can do all this stuff. But another thing you can do is you can actually change the road, right? If you make the road so that you can't drive down the road at 50 miles an hour, maybe you have a bulb out, maybe you have regular roundabouts, maybe you have a bollard that pedestrians can hide behind that cars simply can't run through, then you can have an impact on the risks that pedestrians take on the streets because you've changed the underlying infrastructure. And again, bollards don't solve all problems, right? You can have a tractor trailer blow through a bollard, right? And you can certainly have people drive onto the sidewalk, even though you generally discourage them from driving on the sidewalk and it's hard to do. Um, but the change to the infrastructure actually affects how much time you have to spend policing people. It's a, it affects the kinds of behavior people can do. And as a result, it provides pretty intense changes for what people can expect from their daily life. So to take that analogy back into the internet realm, I'm interested in questions of how we design our network communications protocols and how we design our networks themselves and how we design our operating systems and our usability. And there's usability questions. There's a whole bunch of technical questions that affect whether people can expect to be able to be private, whether they expect to be able to have an intimate communication that isn't surveilled. Uh, and to your question about surveilled by who the government or, or censored by who the government or private industry. The answer in the internet space right now is because private industry has so much access, governments have access. And for people who think that governments are their worst adversaries, I tell you the corporations are the handmaidens to the government's access. For people who are scared about only the corporate access and not the government access, I tell you, well, if the governments decide to make some stuff illegal, you know, they can come and try to compel the corporations to make changes. So I'm concerned about both. I don't have a specific frame that I work in. Um, and while most of my colleagues who are legal colleagues tend to focus on government overreach, rightly, um, many of the changes that I'm interested in have impacts in both government and corporate concerns. I actually do want to ask you about a legal case that I was reading about that came before a California court somewhat recently where a special government task force that was investigating the international gang MS-13 had tried to get Facebook to hand over conversations held over its messenger app. A lot of things struck me about this case, but the first thing was that the only reason I was reading about it is that it made it into court because Facebook refused the request and then the government tried to have it held in contempt and lost. Had Facebook simply said yes, I might never have known. Right, so I don't know how much detail you want to get into that particular case. I've done a bit of reading about it. I don't at all claim to be an expert on it. My understanding is that case was focused specifically on Facebook voice yes. over Messenger, yes. right? Where you wouldn't necessarily expect that Facebook would save all of the voice messages right. or even necessarily have access. And so, uh, I mean, this case, I can get into the technical weeds on in some sense because the communications technology that, that Facebook Voice Messenger was using, as I understand it, I'm not a Facebook developer. I don't have access to the Facebook source code. I haven't actually reviewed network traces or client-side logs of what the devices are doing. But my understanding from the documentation that I've read is that Facebook Messenger used for voice a mechanism called WebRTC which is an internet, an internet voice communications protocol, not standard telephone. It works over the internet. So these are two separate but related networks. Often you can transform traffic in one into traffic for the other. Right? Back in the day, we used modems, which used the phone network to transmit digital data, which sometimes turned into internet data. And today you can also make what are sort of look like the equivalent of phone calls over the internet, right? Facebook Messenger voice. The choices, the protocol choices for Facebook, for how Facebook Messenger used WebRTC to provide voice communications, there's a rate, like many of these protocols have multiple options, right? So like you're building a car, do you build it with a diesel engine or do you build it with a, with a standard gasoline engine? Or do you build an electric car, right? So there's a set of choices you make whenever you're building some piece of technology. Those things can change. They can change much more rapidly with computers. But my understanding is that Facebook Messenger 
use WebRTC in a mode that is uh, strongly deprecated. <laughs> in particular, there was apparently some sort of key sharing agreement that they used that if Facebook wanted to, they could have had access to the keys that people use to encrypt the peer-to-peer -peer voice communication. That wouldn't mean that they would have access to the voice communications because the voice communications themselves could travel over a separate channel, not through Facebook servers, but could have traveled from one endpoint directly to another because of the way the protocol, again, because of the way the protocol works. Right. However, also because of the way the protocol works, if the peer-to-peer -peer connection had failed, sometimes the connection would fall back through a relay server, which may or may not, again, I don't know the full details here, have been operated by Facebook. So if Facebook wanted to, because of the way that Facebook Messenger was set up, um, and because of some of what I would consider to be suboptimal engineering choices by Facebook Messenger, it's conceivable that they could have said, well, we're gonna make a copy of all of the keys that you guys exchange, because we happen to be on path to be able to see them. And we're gonna convince you that you can't talk peer to peer. So you're gonna route your traffic through us. And it'll still be encrypted, but it's encrypted to keys that we have a copy of. And now we have access to the data. And so there's a, so there's a contest there that says like, what's the right thing to do, right? Law enforcement says, <clears throat> we want access to this data. Facebook says, we've designed our tools so that we don't have access to the data. Um, from the engineering community, some of us would say, well, you didn't actually do it quite as well as you could have. You could have, you could have locked yourself out even further. And so where, like, where does that come out? If Facebook turns around and says, sure, we'll grant you access, then what's stopping Facebook from just like pulling everybody's data from a messenger service that they have publicly advertised as being private, even to them, right? If they step up their engineering game and provide better mechanisms where they can't possibly get access to the keys, then what? Does that suddenly make the law enforcement request invalid because they've changed their engineering choices? What if law enforcement comes to Facebook and says, change your engineering choices again, make worse engineering choices and ship those changes out to all of your users? So we're engaged in a battle right now and we have been for, well, most recently we have been for the last like three or four years, but in fact this stretches back to the 1990s, what we called the crypto wars back then, which we thought we had fought and finished and now they're coming, coming back, where Government, U.S. law enforcement in particular, likes to talk about the possibility of trying to make some forms of encrypted communication illegal, or at least make it much more risky to do those kinds of communications, which would mean effectively that they would get some access to data that, they, that they're looking for that currently is harder for them to access. So, so this is a fight on internet protocols. It's a fight on math. It's a fight on software development and distribution. It's a fight on political power. It's like a whole set of these discussions and, and, and struggles that are happening actively right now and we don't have a clear resolution for it. I can tell you what my preference is. My preference is for people should have the right to have private communications. Law enforcement's job by design should not be as easy as possible. If we want law enforcement job to be as easy as possible, we might as well all go, you know, register down at the station house today and submit ourselves to regular review. That's not the kind of fascism that I want to live under. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the fact that math and communications protocols can make law enforcement's job slightly harder, I think is okay. I think that's the trade-off for what we want because we want people to be able to have private communications. And if law enforcement wants to get access to some data, there's lots of other things that they can do besides breaking everybody's normal communications. I want to remind everyone listening that you are listening to Talking Human Rights. Today we are talking to Daniel Kahn Gilmore, who is the Senior Staff Technologist at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. But I realize I actually want to back up because we haven't talked about what started Daniel down this path of becoming a technologist so devoted to expanding technology freedom and technology privacy. This has really been your life's work for much longer than you've been at the ACLU. I've been playing around with computers and information technology and other kinds of technology, just like building things and stuff for many, many years. Always enjoyed that. 
Um, and I enjoy also thinking about things at a sort of systemic level. I think it's important that we don't just focus on how do you do something, but like what does the thing mean and how does it situate it in the rest of the world. And I did some training on how computers work, how networks work, how machine learning and artificial intelligence work years and years ago. Uh, but when I was looking at how I could deploy these tools and these skills, I noticed that the folks who were in, more in control of their technology actually had more options available to them. They had opportunities to, to make decisions that, about what they did with their life or what they did in their work that other people didn't have who were more sort of at the mercy of the tech itself. And so I became interested in, in wondering like, well, how is the tech shape these power structures? How do these decisions get made? And this comes from a bunch of different angles. Uh, one angle where there was actually some ex quite a bit of explicit theory that is, I think, worth looking at for folks who are interested in questions about law and questions about recourse um, is the free software angle. So I'm a free software developer. And when I say free software, I'm talking about free as in, we say free as in free speech, not free as in free beer. What we care about is software freedom. And there's a set of explicitly enumerated principles by groups like the Free Software Foundation and the Open Source Initiative um, and the Debian Project, which I'm also part of, to, to describe what does it mean when we say free software. And some examples of those things are like the right to use the tool for whatever you want to use it for, the right to be able to change it, the right to be able to redistribute it, the right to be able to redistribute your changes. These are things that we have legal constraints on for a lot of proprietary software. But, uh, you know, if I give you a tool, imagine that I gave you, like the classic example is a hammer. Imagine I gave you a hammer and said, this hammer can be used to build cabinetry, but it can't be used to build uh, tables and chairs. If you want tables and chairs, you need to get a new license from me. You would say, that's bananas, and you'd go ahead and you use your hammer to make some tables and chairs, right? But we have legal frameworks that are put in place because of the way the technology was, was constructed and the legal frameworks that were available at the time that encourage people to believe that software is not a tool that the user should be in control of. And the free software movement was an answer, a response to that that said, no, no, it's like these tools are important tools. They shape what people can do. They shape how they can communicate. They shape, in some cases, how they can think and what, what ideas are available to them, and they need to be in control of the users. Um, and so the, that foundational freedom, we call it freedom zero, the freedom to use the tool for whatever you like, is like a really critical element there. And it follows from that because the way that software is developed that we need more, that, we, that you need additional freedom. Because software is changing, you need to be able to change it yourself. You need to be able to use it in a community, which means you need to be able to let friends use it. Right? Imagine I gave you a book and said, you're not allowed to share this book with anyone else. Well. One of the ways you get something from a book is that you share it with your friends and your friends read it and you talk about it, right? And if, I know that there's a lot of electronic books these days where that is becoming more contentious, um, but traditionally, you, if I gave you a book, you could give it to someone else and that was totally understood. That was like baseline, part of the game. Um, and as centralized systems usurp more and more of that kind of autonomous control, they gain power over what people can do and what they think. So I saw those things happening and I asked myself, as a technologist, what am I doing here? Can I, am I building systems that cement that kind of control? Or am I looking at how these systems are structured and trying to figure out ways to devolve that control and to give people more agency in terms of what they do? Um, you know, I was trying to help a school think about their, how they wanted to schedule their students for courses. And the schools that were working with a database that had come from somewhere else that didn't describe what the schools were doing, that this is how you enter what students do for courses, were basically changing their educational strategies for their students in ways that had nothing to do with any sort of educational theory, right? They were changing their, their educational strategies for the students to fit the way the database was structured. Instead of saying, well, what do we think would be the best for the students, and let's schedule them that way, they couldn't because the database was structured in a way that said, well, you know, you have to take English 9 before you take English 10, and therefore every English course has to be either English 9 or English 10, and therefore you separate your students into separate classes. Well, what if the teacher says, I, teaching works better when there are older students in the same class with younger students, right? Now, I'm not saying you couldn't build a database that does that, but if what you're doing is using a tool that someone else controls, maybe you, you don't have an opportunity to use a database like that. And so the decisions that are made in the underlying infrastructure 
end up shaping what kind of outcomes can happen. Another example for information um, like communication choices there is thinking about what kinds of interactions a group can have, right? So you could imagine like a social media type site or a, um, you know, a bulletin board system where there's threaded discussion and someone who's building the bullet board said, oh, you know what, this group needs to make a decision. So I'm going to build a voting app that's built into this bulletin board. So people who are part of this community can take votes on matters of importance. Well, if you decide what kind of a voting app you build, that might very well change the decisions that come out of it, right? Does each vote come with a discussion thread that's associated with it, or is it separate? Is it hard to connect the votes with a discussion thread? Is the vote a majority rules vote, or is it a consensus vote? Uh, who gets to vote? How much are votes weighted? All of these are questions that the underlying software, whoever builds it, they set some defaults. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't even allow you to deviate from the defaults, or maybe they do, but the deviations are within some set of constraints. And whoever designs that group communicate that group decision-making process actually shapes the decisions that can be made. Um, so, so looking at those pieces, I started to ask, like, what can we do to make sure that the tools that we build do focus on ensuring that people have more control? That's so interesting, this idea of how to take control. I do think that people want to take control, but, um, the idea of how to take control does does tend to be very individualized, like entire articles that are about how you shouldn't share photos of your children online because there could be facial recognition technology. And, and so this is just the kind of thing everybody needs to be thinking about. And you know, you'll see a whole article about this without anything about policy, about ways that this technology could be changed so that people can share photos of their kids in the places where they're used to talking to their friends. But, you know, we hear this refrain all the time that the internet has no delete button and you really need to be careful. I mean, I've seen it advised that people, particularly young people, should just assume that anything they put out there could be unearthed at some point. Like that there's, you know, the chance everybody could just know everything, which sounds really dramatic, but, you know, the idea is don't post anything or say anything that you wouldn't want a future employer to see or, a future potential date to see or your child to see. I mean, this is what I mean when I say that like the technical choices shape the social choices that we have available, right? If you really think that you're going to be doing this filter and public presentation, we could take a long time unpacking just what you described there. I think there's like a, there's actually a lot of interesting parts. Like who has access to everything? If everyone has access to everything, then you end up with situations that we call context collapse, right? I'm used to, in my personal life, I'm old, so I used, there was time when I had a significant majority of my interactions with other human beings were not online. Um, but I used to have a person who I was when I talked to my parents and a person who I was when I talked to my brother, and they each got to see the other versions of DKG because they lived with me and I lived with all of them. But I could sometimes be in my room with my brother and say something to him that I knew my parents wouldn't hear. And likewise with my parents, I could say something to them when I knew that Jeremy was out of the house or away doing something else, right? And so I could have a separate, distinct relationship with different people. But as soon as you assume that everybody has access to everything, you only have one person left to be. And I don't think that's a healthy way for humans to be. Like, I'm not saying that people should be duplicitous and always present radically different sides to one person or another, but like who you are to your lover is different from who you are to your parents. And that's different from who you are to your boss, and it's different from who you are to your coworkers, and that's different from who you are to the people who report to you, right? And all of these are different relationships, and it's okay. In fact, it's healthy to be aware of where you stand in your relationship with someone else and to adjust who you are for that relationship. If you have total context collapse where you would just have to pretend to assume that everybody has access to everything or could one day, then I don't know. I don't like, you know, you're probably pretty goofy to your kid, right? Like when you're talking to your kid and you want to like sing them a silly song, maybe that's not a professional way to behave. That's okay. You don't have to be professional when you're talking to your kid, right? And yet, if this video of you singing a goofy song came out in a professional context, it might be something that would embarrass you, right? Mm -hmm. And 
And so, yeah, so are you going to stop being goofy to your kid because it might come out as an embarrassing thing in a professional context? That would be really sad. It would be sad for the child raising, and it would also be sad for the professional context, right? If you're like, oh, everything I do in a professional context, my kid is going to see someday, so I need to make sure that they're not... I mean, no, maybe you need to be able to make an argument in a professional context that isn't appropriate for your kids to hear right now. Um, And that's also okay, right? And it should be okay. so, you know, this is, uh, I don't believe people, frankly, when, I, when they tell me, I just assume everyone has access to everything, because I don't think that they've actually thought through what that means. Uh, I think it would be a real tragedy for most people's lives if they really did grapple with the implications of that complete context collapse. Now, we can't prevent context collapse, right? If I say something to you, you're welcome to turn around and record, and you could record it. I mean, now I know that you're recording me, but you could be recording me or your phone could be recording me in any other context and I wouldn't know, right? But I want there to be, I want there to be an understanding between people and between people and their tools that say it is possible to have a communications channel that is bounded to the set of people that I expect it to be bounded to. I don't want you to think that every time you're talking to somebody, you have to also juggle all the other variants of yourself and other people that you might be talking to at the same time. I, I just don't think that's a healthy way to be in a society. And I don't, think it's a chan- I don't think it gives you a chance to grow either, right? I mean, I have friends, you know, old friends who have known me for ages with whom I can say things that I might be deeply embarrassed about tomorrow because I might change my mind, but it's safe to say them to them because I know they'll call me out when I'm wrong and I know that they'll give me a chance and they'll let me explain myself if they think I've just said something horrible and I can have those conversations and I can try things out and I can learn from that. And I can't do that with everybody. And I don't want to do that with everybody, right? One of the ways that you grow is you experiment with people where you have an intimate relationship with them, so people who you're close to. If you don't think you can do that, I worry about the stultifying effects that has just on your personality, let alone on the larger societies If a society is full of people like that, who can't try things out, who can't grow, who can't change because they don't feel safe talking to anyone, like, I think you end up with a society of people who are, you know, dangerously boring. And I mean that in like a really, really sad way. Like, I think you don't have anybody challenging the things that need to be challenged. And there are things that need to be challenged. Yeah, I feel like this context collapse is already happening. Like this, this constant self-editing. And it really is an invasion of the mind. So I want to talk more about consumer products like Amazon Alexa and Google Home. Um, these devices that are always with us in our home, even when they are supposed to be asleep. Um, and a point you've made is that If these devices wake up on voice command, they have to be listening all the time or they wouldn't know when to wake up and serve us. So what kind of assurance can we have about all the little conversations we have in our homes, which we assume are private, that these devices could be picking up? Well, they can pick up everything, right? They're microphones, they're computers, they're complicated computers with microphones and in some cases cameras attached that people put in their houses and leave on all the time, right? That's what they are. Now, you can do some engineering work with those to try to limit the amount of data that's captured. You can do some engineering work with those to limit the amount of data of of what's been captured that actually makes it off the network and up to some servers. Um, The folks who build those claim that they're doing some of that stuff. I've seen some interesting presentations about that. But ultimately, you're trusting the folks who deploy, who build and deploy that device to do that, right? I could tell you, oh, no, 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 we don't, we only, we only actually, like, we have a separate circuit whose jo- job is just to detect the, the wake word, right. right? And we power everything else down. And then if that circuit flags, then we spin everything else up and feed the rest of the data that follows the wake word into that system. But otherwise, the rest of the stuff where all the bugs could be living, it's just off. Great. Sounds good. How do I know that's what you're doing in your product? Even if you do the engineering right, you could screw it up. There is an example earlier this year where a couple was having a conversation in the living room and apparently their Alexa interpreted one of them as as saying something that meant Alexa. So it woke up, right? It did wake up. 
And then it interpreted something else that somebody said in the conversation as send a memo to, to somebody or other. And the Alexa apparently issued a response saying, you know, are you sure you want me to send a memo to whatever that they didn't hear. And then it interpreted something else in the conversation that somebody said as, yes, go ahead. And then proceeded to record their entire conversation in their living room and send it via email to one of the contacts in the person's address book. That's what they claim happened anyway. We, do know, we know for a fact that the email was randomly sent to one of their contacts and the engineers involved say that there was a series of errors um, in the decision-making process that the machine had that went ahead and sent it out. So even if, you're, even if you've engineered it so that the later stage systems typically aren't activated, you can make a mistake. These machines are not they're not perfect. The decision-making processes are not perfect. Um, and again, like, would if you're building a system like this, are you going to prefer? Are you go, are you going to prefer to build a system that like defaults to not doing a thing for a person, or are you going to build it so that you know it's biased in the direction of well, let's go ahead and do the thing for the person because it's you know that's probably what they want. They're trying to do the thing. You're building a thing because you're imagining the use case where someone wants to use it, right? Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily building the thing in a defensive posture. So you might be biasing the way that you process these inputs in a way that like, how many tests are you doing that include a test where the memo is not sent? How many tests do you, when you're building these systems and you're building a test in it, how many of these tests involve a, a test where, where the user says, shut up Alexa, go away, <laughs> right? Quit it, Alexa. Maybe they have some of them, but that's probably not their priority. Their priority is get the user engaged, get the user using the service, make sure that it works smooth for the people who want to use the service. The people who don't want to use the service are not the customers. Don't build it for them, right? Mm -hmm. But when I go over to someone's house and they have an Alexa, it's still recording me. What about the conversations we have essentially with ourselves? The other day, I was preparing for this interview with you and I started having all these questions that I knew I was going to want to ask you, but I didn't have a moment to sit down. So I pulled out my phone and it has a voice memo app and I just started recording and I got to maybe the third question and I realized, you know, okay, this thing has a play button, a record button, a stop and an erase. But in reality, you know, I don't really know where these memos are stored or what really happens to that data, or what would happen if I were to become someone who is suddenly on the wrong end of a government investigation. I also take a lot of notes on my phone, and I know I'm not alone in this. And if you're listening and you have an iPhone and you do use notes, I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you're searching for something in your Gmail and you suddenly pull up a note, like you pull up your grocery list. This happens to me all the time, and it makes me realize that these little notes that I leave to myself, these little half-baked ideas that I'd like, die of embarrassment if they ever came out, like they just kind of migrate around without me really knowing how. This is why I think it's important that people run software that they control, right? And that software that makes decisions on behalf of them as opposed to on behalf of a mega corporation or um, a government or, or some other agency, right? This is, like, this is why I care about about people running tools that are that are theirs, um, because you should be able to establish an expectation that this information won't be revealed to anyone but you, right? This is a, this is like this is how we think today. It used to be that we put, we thought just in our heads. Maybe we kept a diary. Um, maybe we had a laboratory notebook or something like that, right? But this was like, this, those were the mechanisms that we used. And with a diary or a laboratory notebook in the physical world, you know where that is. Now, someone might steal it from you, but then you know that it's been stolen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe someone breaks into your house and photographs every page and it starts to get a little bit blurry there. You're like, maybe we don't know. But if what's actually happening, as you describe, is that your phone is shipping off all of your intimate thoughts to the cloud and whatever computers who get access to those thoughts in the cloud actually can see the clear text versions of them, that is they're not encrypted before they're sent to someone else's machines, then yeah, those machines have access to what you're thinking, right? It doesn't, like mind control doesn't need to be implemented with some sort of like ESP if the way that we think has been externalized into these machines. 
I often I have a computer that I carry with me that I call my my trusted physical console, but it's also I also call it my cognitive prosthesis, right? It really is how I think. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of thinking in my mind, but I also like if I have questions about something, I'll take notes. If I want to run an experiment on something, I'll write the experiment in the you know in this machine. That machine runs software that I control, and it encrypts the software locally. All of my backups are also encrypted. Like I've made explicit choices to make sure that that's possible. Um, it's possible that the voice recorder that you're using does all of those things and it puts them in your control. But the fact that you don't know, the fact that this isn't like a decision point when you're deciding like how do I get a voice recorder, the voice recording apps should make it very clear. This should be a selling point that says this right. is an app that you can use to do this and it will never be able to leak your secrets, right? Um, but we don't have that kind of uh, decision-making process of it. When you're looking for a voice recorder app, it's like, you know, the star ratings on the app store are like, button too big, you know, I don't like that it's green, you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> but we, but it's just five stars and that's what you choose and you get the highest rated one. You can't, there's no way to say like, these are the things that I care about, right? Which are like actual things about how it works, who controls the data, if there's data retention policies, if data gets automatically deleted after a certain time. There's a lot of things you could do, but instead it's all washed up with the noise of like, I liked it better back when the slider bar, you know, was horizontal instead of vertical. I don't know if you read XK, XKCD. No, this I is, do sometimes, yeah. Yeah, this is a webcomic that's like a nerd webcomic, and there's a great like hurricane warning app, um, and there's like reviews on the hurricane warning app, and there's a bunch of four and five star reviews all about like the colors and whatever, and then there's a one star review that's like, did not warn me about hurricane. It's like, that's the review that you care about. Right, oh my gosh. Yeah, so, you know, but we, this is a failure of the technology community. Like a lot of these bad decisions have been the result of decisions made by information and communications technologists, um, right? We have an obsession with abstraction. We want to hide the inner workings from you because the inner workings are too complicated. We prefer to see, we seem to prefer to make new tools that are just like slapping together a bunch of old tools. And we don't really ask the question of whether, of like all of the implications of, of that. Um, and so, so we, we deliberately hide a lot of workings and that means that we don't acknowledge what the underlying issues might be, right? Maybe your voice recording app doesn't back things up to the cloud, it just saves stuff locally. But if all of your stuff that's saved locally is backed up because you have a separate backup app that's running and those backups aren't protected, then the combination of those things gives you the property that you don't want. And so how do you ensure, like this, this, is, this is a challenge, right? That's how do you express this to people who are trying to use these complicated tools who may not themselves be thinking about the way the tools intersect? Like what is the right way to do that? And so my, I mean, my default answer is that tools need to be very, very conservative, right? If you're making a backup tool, it should assume that where the data is going is a bad place. So none of the, so whoever gets a copy of the backup shouldn't be able to reconstruct the contents of your backup. And that might not matter at all for 95% of your data, right? It might be totally fine that your, that your file of recipes leaks to the cloud, right? But by default, just don't leak the information so that the 5% that you do care about, the parts that are the inside of your mind, aren't something that get leaked. Um, and we're not making those decisions by default in the right way right now. Um, we're opting for how do I make it easier to operate the backup service, right? So we're prioritizing the convenience of the backup service operator instead of prioritizing the privacy of people's own thoughts. And it's true, it's easier to operate a backup service if I have access to the clear text, right? And maybe actually the backups end up being cheaper to run in some cases because there's Maybe less data needs to be pushed if both sides know the clear text, or, um, uh, or maybe it requires less computation. There's a bunch of reasons why it might be slightly cheaper. But, you know, we don't build the cheapest possible cars. We build cars that are more expensive because they have crumple zones. We build cars that have a bunch of these safety elements that ideally you never use. 
you don't use the crumple zone in your car until there's a crash, right? And people spend a lot of engineering time figuring out how to make those crumple zones work. Um, but we don't, we don't budget for that in the same way in our information infrastructure yet, right? Some of us are pushing to try to make sure that people do make those decisions, um, but it's not the default right now. So I'm hoping, like, one of the things that I do is to try to push people to take these other things into account. Wow, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm realizing just how much I didn't know and how much I need to know. I'm thinking about a colleague a few years back in the Republic of North Macedonia. So this colleague and, and friend who is a really incredible activist named Jabir Darala, who I'll interview later. So we'll, we'll hear a lot more about his work, but, but just suffice it to say for now that his work openly challenged a regime that was seeking to consolidate power. And in 2015, it came out that the government um, had been wiretapping thousands of its citizens. It was wiretapping journalists to try and find ways to silence them. It was wiretapping government ministers to make sure they were sufficiently loyal and civil society leaders like my friend of 15 years. And we didn't know for sure that he was being wiretapped, but it was pretty clear that he would have been targeted. And we did get that confirmation later. Someone actually gave him tapes of himself in conversation. But um, the whole point is that I was pretty sure that someone that I was in regular communication with was under surveillance. And looking back, I, I would have loved to have taken a class or read a bunch of books or talked to you about what was happening. But I really didn't have time. You know, when you are doing that kind of work, you're like, you're trying to put out the report, you're trying to publicize the report, you're making sure that everything in it is right. You don't necessarily have time. Um, and so what I did was I took a little post-it note and I put it over my computer's camera because I'd read somewhere that at the very least you should do that. And I think about the fact that I should have done more, but I don't know. What do you think of that? Yeah, and the, I mean, it, it may be that you can't defend yourself or your colleagues from a really powerful adversary like that, right? And maybe that they'll win, right? And maybe that if they throw enough time and enough engineering resources and enough enough people, people's concentration at cracking into your communications with people that you care about, that they'll win. But there is a scale question here, and. Um, you know, again, I like. I appreciate that you're aware that maybe you didn't do enough, but we also, you know, the tools aren't readily available to you, um, and the idea that you would need to suddenly switch your communications patterns is um, that's really hard, right? Switching your communications patterns, just changing your telephone number, is a hard thing for a lot of people to do, right? Let alone saying I'm not going to use a telephone for this kind of communication, or I'm going to. Um, or if your default is talking over Snapchat to say, well, actually, Snapchat has a lot of problems and I'm going to switch off of Snapchat. Now you've got to, but you still have some friends who use Snapchat. Are you, are you going to like not talk to them? No, you're going to talk to them. So now you've got to deal with two communications channels. And if you've got three people, now you've got, you know, you just have more and more complexity that you have to manage, which is why we need the defaults to be simpler, right? You said I would just die if my diaries were published, like because it would be embarrassing. And we can be honest, like people don't actually die from embarrassment, right? There are people who would die if their diaries were published because they have powerful adversaries who would like to kill them, and the diaries would give enough information away that they could kill those people. I may not be one of those people, right? Um, but I think it's okay to say I want this simply because I would be embarrassed, even if I'm not going to die, right? Like, I don't think people should need to say, oh, well, I, I happen to be one of these, like, super, super elite people who, I mean, elite in, this, in the worst possible sense of the term, right, who are at high, the highest level of risk. It's totally okay to say, I don't want to be embarrassed. And that's a totally legitimate reason to say these things should default to different things. It's also okay to say, I don't want to have to do a lot of work to be sure that I can talk to people safely um, because you have other things to do with your life. So I, I run into this situation talking to journalists, speaking of various forms of human rights, right? If you, if you think that a free press is an important part of like, the rights for a society to flourish, 
Think about what it means for a journalist who has potential sources, not even interesting sources, but potential sources. If, you've, if you're trying to cultivate a relationship with a potential source, how can you do that in a way that doesn't make the source afraid, right? If you tell them, oh, we use this thing, it's good enough to defend against someone who's trying to kill you, then the sources who are like, I don't actually want anyone to try to kill me, and I don't think anyone's trying to kill me, and like, this conversation just became way more cloak and dagger than I'm comfortable with. No, you want to be able to say, like, let's have a normal conversation. There needs to be a baseline understanding of what's having a normal conversation so that when someone does, you know, you cultivate a hundred contacts, maybe two of them turn out to be people who are willing to take a risk and stick their neck out and really halt some level of injustice that they know about that nobody else does by talking to you. If the baseline is that everybody who talks to you is well understood and well known to be someone in contact with you, then those folks are already screwed. They can't do that because once you publish your story, whoever has all the metadata about who you talk to just looks it up and says, these are the only folks who had access to that data. Right? So again, like the, there needs to be a simple way that everybody knows this is how you talk to a journalist, period. And why journalists? Like, why stop at journalists, right? If you can just change it so that people understand that you should have conversations over private channels generally because that's the polite way to have a conversation. Okay. Speaking of conversations, this has been a really great one. And it's not the last conversation I'm going to have with Daniel about these issues. Um, in fact, this is actually part one of two episodes, at least two episodes on technology and human rights. Part two will follow directly after this. And then I anticipate that um, we'll probably do more episodes going forward because this is an area that has profound effects like every single day on the way that we live, the way we think, and a whole slew of rights. We're talking about the right to privacy, the right to free speech, to free association, and we haven't even gotten into the ways that technology can deprive us of social and economic rights, like non-discrimination in matters of housing and, and employment. So there's a lot to discuss. But I want to wrap this one up because I, I want to make sure that the main points really sink in just for this little section. And um, I want to highlight a couple things that really jumped out at me here. The first one is that we had this whole conversation about technology and rights, but we didn't we didn't really hammer away at the law and legal cases that much. Um, we didn't assign primacy to the law in, in a discussion of rights. And I think that's really important. And it's, it's not because the law is unimportant. Of course, we, we want to know where the law stands. We want to study the law. But, but it, it shouldn't necessarily be the first place we go when we're talking about a human rights issue. The first place we should go is just thinking through decisions about what is needed. What should be the baseline expectations for all of us? And, and when you do that exercise, when we do that exercise of developing a baseline expectation, we don't just do it for ourselves. We take it one step further and we imagine the weakest among us, um, people who have nothing and no one, um, no state to protect them, people who are targeted. I think this is one of the reasons we keep coming back to the question of defaults and of thinking through and changing what technology does by default. Um, at one point in our conversation, Daniel uses the analogy of changing the road and as you read stories of leaks and invasions of privacy and um, targeted activists, you, you might also start to ask, why are we not talking about the defaults in these conversations? Why do we so often talk about these things from an angle of consumer choice or consumer information? For instance, near the end of our conversation, where we're talking about voice recorders and note-taking apps and various privacy concerns that could come up with those, you'll notice that Daniel is very careful in what he prescribes. He doesn't say, pick the app from the company that promises to not divulge your secrets. He doesn't say, don't forget to look at everything you sign. He doesn't advise us how to go down a whole long list of privacy settings. He doesn't say, we need to pass a law against companies releasing your data. Instead, he draws us back to the construction of technology and says that what we need to know 
is that it's impossible for your data to be divulged because the data does not exist to be divulged. Because even if your data is backed up in some way, it is not readable by anyone but you. It's not trackable to you. By, by making that demand, you get closer to a guarantee that even if the laws change, and even if the company goes under or is the target of a hack and its promises are broken, not by its own choice, your data is your data. Your secrets are your secrets. And that's the bar we need to be setting. You know, these are completely reasonable demands to be making. It's just important that non-technologists understand technology well enough to know that these are demands that we can make. Um, anyway, I want to flag that in particular because I know what we're going to talk about in the next episode. And we're going to talk a lot about Facebook, where this subject of data collection is going to come up. We'll also talk about secure network protocols. And we'll talk about something called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a piece of law that has been used to penalize technology activists and um, people who are trying to understand better how technology works and to change how technology works. We're going to talk about so much. And I really hope you'll join us. In the meantime, you have been listening to Talking Human Rights. I'm your host, Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest has been Daniel Con gilmore of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Our assistant producer and editor is Sibet Partee. You can find us on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.